that they're feeling anxious or depressed and they don't understand why because again there was no specific event so feeling really poorly about themselves feeling very confused feeling overwhelmed feeling like it's hard to trust people or i think predominantly feeling bad about themselves feeling uh, what we might define as like a, a chronic or neurotic shame or guilt constantly feeling preoccupied with what they've done wrong and how to manage uh, making that kind of bad feeling go away. But depending on where you're at in the stage of treatment or self-awareness, you could feel all of those things and actually think that you're just being a good Christian, just being a good, uh, you know, uh, member of your community because you're understanding how bad you are in the eyes of God. That was Hillary McBride, and you may recognize her voice. She's a co-host on the Liturgist podcast. Also, she's the host of the CBC podcast, Other People's Problems, and she's a registered clinical counselor in private practice in Vancouver, and I have been waiting to talk to her all about spiritual trauma. In my work as a pastor and as I talk to people who are recovering from abusive spiritual environments, whether that be family systems or church systems, I've been really wanting to get a clinical look at both what spiritual trauma is and how to take steps to recover from it. And so Hillary McBride, our conversation was so helpful to me. There were so many moments where I just sort of had this huge aha and I was so grateful for her work, for her passion and for her ability to articulate both how trauma happens, what trauma is, and then how to move toward healing. So enjoy this conversation with Hillary McBride. Hi, Hillary. How are, how are you today? I'm doing so well. I'm so thrilled to be having this conversation with you. So I'm, my day is going great. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to I want to jump right in because, um, and I really have been eager to talk to you. Oh, thank you. Uh, and we're going to talk about uh, spiritual trauma and essentially the trauma that happens uh, when you're involved in a. a spiritual system, a church system Mm -hmm. that maybe um, like you don't even know that you're traumatized. And so sort of that's the, that's the bullseye that I sort of want to hit because as a pastor, I talk to lots and lots of people that are coming out of maybe the evangelical church or, or any kind of church. And I can tell like, man, they are not doing well, but they don't have like, here's this thing that happened. Now, mm-hmm. some of them do, right? So um, so I want to jump right in. I, I, okay. I know you've, you've done a lot of work with this. So um, first of all, can you give us your working definition of trauma? Yeah. So what might be helpful to describe right off the bat is that trauma is defined not by the thing that's happened to you, but actually how your nervous system is responding. So there are things that people can go through that I might look at it from the outside and go, how do you not have trauma? But it could be because of an incredible amount of resources that they have before or during or after the traumatic event or um, because of past traumas that their body responds different ways. So trauma really inherently is very phenomenological, which means that it's unique to the person who lives through it. And then we can't ascribe from the outside what specific events are going to be traumatic or not. Uh, So one working definition that I really like, it's very simple, it's really helpful, uh, is to think about trauma as anything that's negative and unexpected that leaves us confused, overwhelmed, and powerless. So those, those specific criteria are really helpful when we're looking at a single incident trauma, like a car accident or uh, an experience of violence or you know a, maybe a catastrophic natural disaster. 
The problem is that in the last few decades, we've become more more uh, adept at understanding, noticing, diagnosing something that we call complex trauma, which doesn't have a single event. It's usually interpersonal. It's usually systemic. And it leaves a person, again, kind of disoriented, fragmented within themselves. But there isn't, like you were talking about, there isn't this specific negative event where you can look at it and go, boom, that was the moment when it feels like everything shattered. But it's this slow erosion of our internal working model, uh, our sense of feeling like we have to become codependent on a system, often the inability to think for ourselves and almost like a kind of brainwashing that happens where we become uh, conditioned to to disconnect from our internal knowing, our body's cues, uh, maybe even some interpersonal context as a way of belonging to a certain system, to a relationship. So you might see that in an ongoing abusive relationship between a parent and a child, uh, a perpetrator and a victim, or in some cases, a system and people who participate in that system. So the the working definition of a, of a trauma for a single incident is really easy to capture. Again, negative, unexpected, leaving you feeling confused, overwhelmed, and powerless. But when we start to get into the weeds with these more ongoing interpersonal systemic issues, it's harder to define trauma because again, it is a series of usually small events that happen over a long period of time that erode our, our sense of self and can put our nervous system on edge. Yeah. I mean, that makes so much sense to me that it's primarily this, this response that your body you know, mm-hmm. has. And, yeah. and I think that makes me think it can be an email. It could be um, uh, the the facial expression that your parent mm. gives you after a certain something you did and you feel lots and lots of shame, right? So, Yeah, and I would differentiate in there between small T traumas and big T traumas. Right. That's something that we talk about clinically. So uh, if a parent gives you a shameful look, that could be really distressing for your nervous system, right? It could create this imprint of shame that leaves you feeling not good enough and then engaging in behaviors to manage the shame or to prevent the shame. But again, that might not have the same effect. In fact, we could argue that predominantly it wouldn't have the same effect as being in a catastrophic natural disaster. But think of death by a thousand paper cuts. When you are constantly shamed over and over and over again by the people who you're told you need to depend on to survive, that's going to shape your sense of self. It's not going to leave you feeling uh, perhaps afraid to be in your uh, house because of what happens if there's an earthquake, but it might make you afraid to be in relationship with people who have power over you. Right. So looking at what kinds of traumas they are in relationship to how, how frequently they're occurring, how intense they are at the moment, how long they last, all of those things are what we consider to be peri-traumatic factors. What's happening at the moment of the trauma? Again, that is going to shape the effect that it has on the person. If you have a really awful event that happens, but it lasts for five seconds and it has nothing to do with relationships, then it's probably going to be easier to be in relationships in the future and maybe harder to be in situations where you feel scared. But if you're in an experiencing intense interpersonal dynamics that leave you powerless and confused and overwhelmed, and they go on for years, 
it's probably going to be pretty hard to trust people in the future. Right, right. So, mm -hmm. I mean, what, so as you've met with clients or as you've experienced just conversations with people, even with friends, what are some of the common characteristics of someone who you would say is probably suffering from a sort of spiritual trauma? Yeah, it's really hard to articulate because again, sometimes the sense of, of spiritual trauma is something that people carry on the inside and they might not represent some of the classic diagnostic symptoms that we would mark as being uh, markers of trauma. Again, a, a diagnosis of PTSD requires several things to have happened. Uh, and for them to shift, for something to be have shifted in your nervous system and be lasting for over 30 days, if you don't have the symptoms of PTSD as defined by the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, it doesn't mean you don't have trauma. It just means that you don't have symptoms in the way that these specific and sometimes seemingly um, arbitrary categorizations have defined. So again, people could say that they have spiritual trauma and I might not know by interacting mm -hmm. with them. Mm -hmm. And that's part of why it's so hard to actually get, get treatment is that a person might not be jumpy in the same way that a person would be jumpy or hypervigilant after having a single incident trauma. But one of the diagnostic or not diagnostic features, but one of the clinical presentations that, uh, that might be most significant in terms of why people start seeking therapy is mood changes, right. that they're feeling anxious or depressed and they don't understand why, because again, there was no specific event. So feeling really poorly about themselves, feeling very confused, feeling overwhelmed, feeling like it's hard to trust people, or I think predominantly feeling bad about themselves, feeling uh, what we might define as like a, a chronic or neurotic shame or guilt, constantly feeling preoccupied with what they've done wrong and how to manage um, making that kind of bad feeling go away. But depending on where you're at in the stage of treatment or self-awareness, you could feel all of those things and actually think that you're just being a good Christian, just being a good, uh, you know, uh, member of your community because you're understanding how bad you are in the eyes of God and bad, just how bad your sin is. So insight is an important part of this too, that lots of people will think that they are working really hard to be righteous and might actually feel then a sense of relief or pride or goodness in how bad they feel about themselves. So it's complicated, right? It's, um, People might notice a mood change, but not might might not understand that that's a result of being in a system where they were told they were bad, and their badness and their awareness of their badness was actually a way to uh, glorify God or to get some sort of um, status as a righteous person. Well, that's I'm so glad you brought that up. I mean, that's mm -hmm. sort of what I want to get at is some of the theology that surrounds what I would say is a, a, a just predominantly American evangelical church is a theology of unworthiness. And mm. you're, you're, and I'm, I'm just saying this from years and years and years of my own background, but also working with people is there is kind of a glib, even unthinking profession of faith, which, you know, says, you know, God is so great and I'm not worthy of God's love, but God loves me anyway. And, um, and so thank God, you know, and, and, and I was talking to a friend actually just last night and he has about a 10 year old kid and he goes, and he was really, I mean, he was like working through this big time and he's like, mm -hmm. he's like, I would never tell my son 
that he's not worthy of my love, but I love him anyway, that he doesn't mm-hmm. deserve my love, but I love him anyway. So why do we say that? Mm-hmm. Why do we, why do we, and his point was essentially like, why don't we call bullshit on that? Yeah. Like, but, but we were so trapped in a way of thinking. So let's, um, I mean, if you're, if you're willing to go there, let's, mm-hmm. let's, let's, let's suppose that you're with a, um, a patient and they're starting to say, I, I just can no longer believe this. But then they're also feeling this overwhelming sense of, uh, oh no, like they're in trouble for not believing mm-hmm. this or mm-hmm. they've, you know, like sort of how would you help them begin to walk through that? Well, I think that, um, there's a few things I'll circle back to in a second based on what you said, because I think it's such an interesting point that you're making about this, the theological argument that we have that makes us feel like crap. Uh, I have, I've seen so many clients who have come out of these religious and faith traditions who said, how come, how come good theology makes me feel bad? Like I've been sold the story that this is really good theology, but I feel horrible about myself and it doesn't really make sense. Like wouldn't good theology produce lives of thriving? And so that is often the crack in the door for them, that there is this, um, their lived experience of being a person of faith does not add up to, uh, what they were sold that it would, it would be like. If someone's sitting in front of me saying, I can no longer believe this, right? I'm having trouble believing this and and I'm feeling like I'm in trouble for saying that. I think what I like to say to people right off the bat is thank you so much for telling me what a risk to take to tell someone, particularly someone who you believe is some authority in some way, that you're in conflict. What an important thing to name. And often anxiety comes from our experience of having so many feelings that we don't know what to name. We don't know how to name them. And we're told often don't feel, or if you feel, you can only feel one thing at once. And so to be able to name multiple things at the same time, I feel sad. I feel conflicted. I feel also this sense of wanting to belong and do the right thing. I'm scared. I don't want to get in trouble, Mm -hmm. right? All of those things are allowed to coexist. And when we can name them, we can understand why you're feeling the way that you do. But then secondly, I just love to normalize for people that they're feeling that way because And I'll often explain, do some psychoeducation around to the role of social connection in our survival as a species, evolutionarily speaking, but also then in terms of thriving and coping and maintaining well-being in our life. Our brains are actually so wired to connection that we do not develop certain parts of our brain if we are not in relationship with people. So we need social connection to actually have our brain grow not even to flourish, but just to get to the state where we could do adult functioning. Wow. So when, when that, that social connection and belonging is wired into our nervous system to help us survive, doing anything that would threaten that belonging would understandably make us scared, right? It would understandably make us think, I don't want to jeopardize this community that I've built. Mm -hmm. And because of the way that we are often told in certain faith or spiritual communities, like you have to sell out for us. You have Mm -hmm. to belong and be invested to show you're committed and to get the most out of this. In fact, guess what? Church is meant to be community. (laughs) We co-opt that Mm -hmm. and have people buy into a system that then if they start to question, leaves them feeling like, well, who do I have then? So understandably, there is some fear. There is a sense of guilt. 
that creates behavior control, that keeps people engaged in a system that uh, is also hurting them at the same time. And I, I will, I will give the caveat that belonging is so important and people in this day and age, I think are in a way simultaneously more connected and more disconnected than they've ever been, that we have access to more people through social media, but less face-to-face, -face, real, authentic, present conversations, um, and that we are needing community. But I think whenever a community says it's us or nobody mm -hmm. or um, demands a kind of allegiance that doesn't allow you to think critically, that that is problematic. So churches, I don't think I could ever say black and white or good or bad. It's in toxic communities mm -hmm. where you have to ascribe to a certain belief and that your, uh, your adherence to those beliefs creates a conditional acceptance. That's where the problem comes in. Oh, that's so well said. And again, I mean, I don't even know if I've introduced myself enough to know. Like I've, I have been a pastor for 24 mm -hmm. years mm, wow. and I've found myself um, bristling at comparisons. Like when people say, oh, the church is a family, you know, like here at church, we're a family or here at church, you should mm. experience rich and deep community. And I kind of want to scream mm -hmm. and, and say sort of like, you know, you may leave or I may leave and that's different from someone that's leaving yeah. your family. And so even in that that's way, right. it's, it's not a family. And I think, yeah. um, the church is notorious for making promises that it really, and I, I sound negative because I am <laughs> negative about this <laughs> aspect of it. I think we've, we've oversold what the church actually is and could be, mm. and now sort of the pain of all of those broken promises and um, right. sort of coming home to roost. And I, and I bet you see it because I see it a lot too. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Well, if I could just jump in there yeah, for a second, please. what I might say is the parallel is with therapy. And, and I see this lots for people who are coming out of uh, very traumatizing contexts. I do as a trauma therapist, among other things, uh, work primarily with people who have both single incident trauma or like a, a shock trauma and event and complex trauma that comes from years of childhood abuse or cult experiences. And what would be very tempting for me to say when someone walks in the door is you can trust me. Right. But when somebody has been told that they need to trust somebody else and then that trust has been broken mm -hmm. and it happens slowly in an erosive and toxic way, actually, that's one of the most triggering things a person could hear because yeah. they're, they're not getting to decide for themselves if the community is safe or if the person is safe. They're being told, mm -hmm. you have to think how I want you to think. So often what I say to people when they come into therapy is, I am not going to ask you to trust me. I am not. Your body will know when you are ready to trust me. And that will be a sign that some healing has happened. I'm never going to tell you that you, that you have to, or that I'm worthy of your trust just by how we interact, my hope is that that will be your experience, but you get to decide that. I don't get to say that I'm trustworthy. Your body will tell you if I'm trustworthy or not based on how much you're able to share and how our relationship grows over time. And if you can see me handle your challenging experiences in a way that feels loving and supportive and gracious. So um, instead of telling people in a healing environment, how they need to think. We need to let people think for themselves. And so I think that that's something that we should do in faith communities and say like, 
if this wants to, if you want this to be a place where you feel like you have built a new kind of found family, then build that and go ahead and see if that works for you and find other people who want that too. But I'm not going to tell you that it's your family. That is a kind of uh, power over seductive and manipulative tactic to get people to buy in. If you feel like this is your family, then you feel like this is your family, but your body gets to decide that, not me. Oh my gosh. I love that, Hillary. That is so, Mm -hmm. so well said. And so my follow-up is Mm -hmm. because again, I think we are so, we are not used to paying attention to our body. We're not used to listening to it. So what are, you know, two or three ways that you help people even realize when their body is ready or not Mm -hmm. ready to trust or to dive in? Yeah. Let me just draw the link between these two things here that you're saying. Um, One thing you said earlier and one thing you're saying right now is that in a post uh, post enlightenment uh, post colonization and colonization context, what we have done is divorced ourselves from the body and believe that the thoughts that we have are the best way to experience life. And that's where the centrality of theology comes in is we can think our way into relationship with God. We can have good ideas that give us access to God in a way that experiencing the world and being present never could. And that comes from Plato And then uh, I think probably even some poor translations of Paul. And then I would even go on to say Descartes um, and rationalism and this idea that the mind is separate from the body and that the mind is closer to the spirit and that mind and spirit are some way to transcend the challenges, the lusts, the limitations, the pain of the body, that the body has been our scapegoat for pain and suffering in life. And so in, in that, we've tried to get away from the body and get into the mind. Then what happens is we experience events or pain or suffering, and it can kind of happen in the mind because our mind and our body are connected. But primarily when we go through trauma, it happens in our body. And that's because the areas of our body that are responsive to fear and danger cues um, are connected to these subcortical structures in our brain that create these automatic responses for us. And actually when these automatic responses are happening, they become on a functional level disconnected from the thinking parts of our brain. So when we engage in experiences that feel scary, threatening, overwhelming, the part of our rational brain that we often think of as being the most us that part is not connected to the part that's carrying pain. So we need to get into, and I don't mean pain in just a physical sense, but ache, sadness, fear, anger. What we need to know is that emotion happens in the body and emotion is part of our survival response. It's our body's way of saying, get away from this thing, go towards that thing. This thing feels good. This thing doesn't feel good and helps us understand what is happening in our environment and how we want more or less of it. So one of the first things that I often do with people who've experienced trauma is get them to feel feelings, right? Feelings happen in the body. So noticing, you know, when you remember that memory, did your hands get hot? Did your throat feel like it got tight? Did something flip in your tummy? And sometimes people don't even know how to ask those questions of themselves. So I'll say, let's start from your head to your toes and let's scan and notice what feels different now than a few moments ago. But that can be really challenging to do when people come out of faith context where they've been told your body is bad. Don't trust your body. It's almost like they have to learn from the beginning things that other people learn 
you know, when they're three, four or five, how to pay attention to hunger cues, how to pay attention to arousal cues, how to pay attention to fear and danger. But when everything has been shut down, it's almost like we have to start from scratch. Now for people who've had trauma, uh, the body, like I said, is where our trauma lives because it's in our nervous system. It's in this super highway that connects at the base of our brainstem and our, our, you know, our limbic system to all of our limbs and our digestive organs, our viscera. When we go into the body, we can't pretend that the traumas didn't happen. So the body is often a very scary place to be because it's the real time response to fear and danger that in some ways we've tried to get really far away from. And even on like a ideological level, if somebody's experienced sexualized trauma, if they've experienced physical violence in any way, going into the body means not dissociating and actually feeling the physical pain and the remnants of the place where the trauma happened. It's like if you could imagine having gone to a school where you experienced violence, you probably wouldn't want to go back to that school. So it'd be really helpful for you to stay very far away from that school. But what if the school is your body, right? Right. What if the place where the trauma happened is your body? It's going to be scary to go back into it because it's going to remind you of when you had all of those overwhelming feelings during the trauma that you couldn't get away from. So it has to happen in a slow and a titrated manner where you are approaching, then moving away, approaching and moving away with somebody who is safe and trained right? That's a really important distinction is that trauma therapy is not like other kinds of therapy. And it means having a very astute awareness of uh, attachment patterns and uh, psychomotor and somatic markers of trauma activation, because sometimes a person won't even know that they're re-experiencing trauma, but someone else will. So knowing how to notice those cues and what to do about them can be really helpful. But to answer your initial question, what I usually start with is helping people feel mm-hmm. and then create agency in the bodies to know that they have choice. And often that includes engaging in movement or activity that feels goal-directed and purposeful and reestablish the body as a place where there is choice, where there is power, and where there is a sense of self-awareness uh, and care. Well, I, and th- this is so helpful because I think Again, against the backdrop of a, of a theology where you can't trust your body because it's bad mm-hmm. and you do mm-hmm. everything in your power to sort of suppress every desire, uh, everything that sort of doesn't come from a carefully curated and edited stream of consciousness yeah. in your mind, you know. Yeah. Um, but let me ask you a question, too, because I, and, I don't know that I heard this right from someone else. Um, but I remember several years ago, I was working with, uh, someone who was trying to help me, uh, experience a trauma. Mm. And she said, um, the trauma, trauma gets stored in the body. And when you, when you continually think about it in your mind and when it stays in your mind, and this is where I'm asking you, is this right or wrong? Mm -hmm. I honestly don't know, but your body doesn't know how to differentiate between the first event that mm. when it happened and you're rehearsing it over and over mm-hmm. again. And so it's, it's almost as if you're, you're sort of, you're, you're, you don't cognitively think you're going through the trauma again, but your body does. Is that true or is that? Yeah. 
Yeah, I think it would depend on the level of dissociation a person has. Sometimes uh, people are so dissociated that they're remembering and it's detached, but mm-hmm. they're detached from even more than the trauma. They're detached from their partner. They're detached from right. feeling their kid you know, connected to their kids. So we might look at like what we would call a hypo arousal, where mm-hmm. there is a deactivation in the body, and because the body is like trying to block out, or the brain is trying to block out everything that they remember about the trauma, but then there would be a hyper arousal, which is when the body becomes so activated that kind of like what you're saying, um, a person can't distinguish between when they're remembering it and if it really happened. And they're probably on, on the spectrum of hyper arousal a lot of other times too. So feeling anxious in times when they're not in danger feel and they don't or they, they aren't even thinking about the trauma right. but the brain is does some really fascinating things in how it stores traumatic memory which is it stores everything that's happening on a sensory level both inside and outside the body together with the with the specific intellectual memory so remembering in a narrative way what happened is connected to the feeling in the body the temperature of the air how your body is positioned relative to your spine and gravity that's what we call proprioceptive memory Um, and all of these kinds of memories smell right get packaged together and so a person can be i'm using air quotes here remembering in on a body level the trauma Mm -hmm. even without any cognitive memory of it so they could be at a store and smell a smell Mm -hmm. similar to a smell that happened during the trauma and so their body is like freaking out because the body is remembering Mm -hmm. on a sensory level the trauma but intellectually they're not so there's a bunch of things that can happen and I, I don't think it would be fair to say it always happens right, one right, way, but right. rather sometimes we can be thinking about it intellectually and have no physiological response. Other times we can have a physiological response as if the trauma is happening, but not think about it, not even be remembering it. Other times we can be thinking about it and it can feel like it's happening again. Other times we can forget it ever happened and not feel anything in our body right. at all. Right. right. And that's when people come in for dissociative disorders and whatnot. Right. So there's kind of a combination of all of those things. And it really depends on uh, you, your history, how long the trauma happened, how long ago it was, uh, how people responded to the trauma, if they were supportive, if you had going into the trauma experience of knowing how to feel, knew who to go to, if you had to shut down as a matter of survival. Mm-hmm. Right. There's a bunch of things that go on. Yeah. Yeah. So helpful. Well, um, I think Good. maybe one last question, Hillary, yeah, if you have please. time for it, um, because, because I'm sensitive, like certain listeners, this is just going to be really interesting and fascinating. Mm-hmm. And they're going to talk, you know, it's going to be like uh, happy hour conversation, but other people are going to be listening and going, oh yeah. my gosh, I, I, I need some help with this. Yeah, are there, um, and I'm going to put any links you mentioned on the, on the show notes, but Certain people might want to read a book, The Body Keeps yeah. the Score, or something like that, or um, how to get in touch with good trauma therapists where mm-hmm. where they live. Like, how, what would you say in terms of helping people take a next step if they need to? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there are lots of great books out there, and what I'll do is instead of rattling them off now, I'll send you a list and you can put them in show notes. Okay. Um, there's also, I think... Um, depending on what kind of therapy you need, it can be, it can be great to look through some search engines online, to look in your, in your community, people who do EMDR, people who do somatic experiencing, people who do lifespan integration or 
OEI or brain spotting, right? There, there's a ton of different kinds of therapies out there, but anything that involves a kind of re-experiencing that connects you to your body and drops in resources that you didn't have at the time, that's going to be a great place to start. I think there are some therapists out there who've got an incredible wealth of knowledge about how to work on this kind of stuff, but if you go and meet them, you won't connect. So I would say that because, especially when you're working with complex trauma, trauma that's been religious, uh, related to social context, belonging, connection, people, it's more important than anything that you have someone that you work with who you think, I could go hard places with this person. And I feel like, although this is scary stuff to talk about, I feel safe to take that risk with them. Those are the people that you want to be working with, as well as people who have training in trauma. Um, so I'll send some resources your way for people to to check out after or during watching this show. But I would say for anyone who's listening who feels activated at all, sometimes activation in our body, like racing heart, uh, feeling like we're short of breath, that can be a sign that we need to work on something. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean that you're broken, right? The brain is incredibly plastic, which means that we can learn to become, we can learn to become at rest, even if we've learned to become activated in certain situations that our brain is just as adept at saying, okay, I can learn, I can learn to be okay now as it was at learning to be not okay. Right. right? So the brain can change and that's an incredibly helpful thing. And one of the best avenues for change and transformation is a relationship with an attuned, caring other who knows what's going on for you, who can read your body cues, who can help you emotionally regulate so that you can learn to emotionally regulate. Right. So good. Um, so just wrapping up here, check yeah. out stevewings.com slash show notes and just search. If you're listening to this, you know, many months later, just search for the Hillary McBride episode on this good word, and we'll have a list of all kinds of resources. Um, and I just want to underscore that maybe some of you listeners think therapy is just sort of talk therapy. And it's, it's when you talk about issues and then someone says, well, tell me more. And, you know, mm-hmm. and Hillary is definitely talking about something different than that. Their EMDR she mentioned, and, um, and there, there just are so many good resources right now to, to help you process differently mm-hmm. than just maybe the therapy that that we all had 20 years ago or something like that. And and I'm I'm not disparaging that at all. I'm just sort of highlighting Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And that's such an important thing to note because actually the parts of our brain that store the, the sensory motor aspects of the trauma that's stored in our nervous system often become disconnected or fragmented and aren't able to be reached by language centers of our brain. So it's really important not just to talk about it, but to do some some body-based work, uh, some of the therapies that I mentioned. And then therapy, we think of as being great for doing this kind of existential integration for the kind of plastic surgery element of it, having a story that we can tell, understanding, creating a narrative. Mm-hmm. But that can only happen when we feel like our bodies are at rest and our bodies know that the trauma is over. So you're, you're absolutely right. For certain things, talk therapy is one of the mm-hmm. best mm-hmm. interventions a person could get. Uh, we know that the evidence says for, for therapy related to trauma that we often need to do a little bit more before we get to the talk therapy aspect. Right. So good. Mm-hmm. Okay. I know we're out of time. So just feel free to answer like this mm-hmm. with the yeah. briefest possible words, but, yeah. but I'm also sensitive to people that maybe they've really named um, a kind of abuse or mm-hmm. trauma from a church leader or something. And, and they might feel like, 
well, the thing I have to do, I mean, I read it in my Bible, is to go confront them and talk to them and talk to them face to face. And I j- just, um, <laughs> what would you say to that? You could probably sense my own. Uh, but, yeah. yeah, yeah. I think that um, if we are expecting another person to give us a response in order for us to get healing, then we've given all of our power to heal there away to the person who hurt us and could then hurt us again. I would say that there are some situations when we have a loving, caring person who hurt us and they've changed mm-hmm. or they hurt us and they didn't know, then saying, hey, you hurt me, right, can be a really beautiful thing. But if we are allowing our healing to be contingent on another person's response, um, it's going to leave us stuck in a situation where possibly they could create even more trauma. So what I'll say is that we need people to heal because we are people, people, Mm. but we don't need the person who hurt us in order to heal. In fact, often what we need is corrective experiences with people who listen and give us what we didn't have in order for our nervous system to go, oh, not everybody is like that. Mm. That's so good. Hillary, you are such, so this was so helpful. Thank you so so much for your time. You're so welcome. You're so Um, welcome. And yes. And so, um, um, and thank you for carving me in, I mean, to Mm. your daily schedule. (laughs) Uh, and thank you for all the work that you do with the liturgists Uh, and uh, the retreats that you lead and the speaking Mm. that you do. Uh, is there any way that like the best way that people can, can see your stuff? Is it your website? Yeah. Yeah, Website, hillarylmcbride.com. I'm also really active on Instagram, posting stuff about mental health and resources and things that I'm interested in. So Instagram is Hillary, the Anna McBride, uh, Twitter, Hillary L McBride. And, um, yeah, I okay. think those are probably the best ways to find what I'm what I'm up to. And other people's problems is another therapy podcast that I'm a part of. It's oh, yeah, a podcast yeah, yeah. where yeah, where we put mics in my sessions with clients, and you can hear me doing therapy with them. They've given consent, and they are not um, edited around in any way. They're edited down for length, um, right, right. but not doctored in any way. So you can hear what real therapy sounds like. And people are reporting that listening to that is a really great step for them to get some support if they can't find access to a therapist, if they have never been to therapy and don't know what it's like, that it can be helpful. And I do some EMDR with a a couple of clients on that on that podcast. So if you're interested to hear more about what that sounds like, other people's problems. All right. Check it out. That is a great podcast. Um, Okay. Thanks, Hillary. Have a great rest of your day. And uh, man, I really appreciate your time. You're so welcome. Take care. Hey, friends, thanks so much for listening to This Good Word. If you love this podcast, there's three ways that you can support my work. One is by jumping on Patreon, patreon.com slash thisgoodword. You can become a patron at various levels and get lots of good free stuff, including free tickets to any live events that I do, signed books, and other stuff. The second way is to share your favorite episodes via Twitter and Facebook, uh, email, however it is that you share content. Let some friends know that you love it. And then third is to go on iTunes and leave a rating or a review. So thanks so much, my friends. We are dust and breath. We are limited and limitless. We are human and holy, and we are in it together.